0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by the founder of MetaDeveloper, Dr. Aino Corey, who is a technical conference editor and Agile Retrospectives facilitator. Dr. Aino Corey. welcome to Maintainable. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. So given your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software application's code base is being well-maintained?
1: Well, I think it's very important for maintainability that people are actually able to understand what the code base means, what it does, and why it does so. So some people say that, well, you could just read the code, and that's sufficient. But I think it's pretty important that code is actually written with some, some sort of standard within an organization so that people are able to, to read it quickly, to just glance over it and understand it. So I think the readability is, is essential for the maintainability, not just for other people, but also, well, just for yourself after three months where you've forgotten about it.
0: What's your take on the metaphor technical debt?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I talked to several companies about technical debt. And some people love the term and some people hate the term. And for the ones who love the term... I think it's important to think about technical debt as something other people have done before us how that has really that's holding us down and then there are some people who say well actually technical debt is what we're doing every day and then there are some people who really dislikes the term technical debt who who thinks that it's a ridiculous term because it's nothing to do with with debt or anything like that so I I hear people re- reacting in in many different ways but what I think is most important and and what is overarching over all these is that often the management doesn't really appreciate how much time and effort and investment you actually have to put into making sure you that you don't have anything that could be called technical debt. So that that you make sure to clean up your code base from time to time, or perhaps every day, every time you do something, and see is is this still you could say maintainable, readable? Is it do we still want everything that's in there? Or should we remove some of it?
0: Is it safe to assume that you get to be part of conversations where there's developers speaking with non-developers about some of the reasons why things can't be done as quickly as they would like due to things like technical debt or existing issues within the code base? Yes,
1: that's definitely safe to say that. So I have my own company, but uh, one of the things that I do is that I'm an agile coach for various companies. Sometimes I'm a full-time agile coach and sometimes I'm just there for one day or two days a week but one of the things that I definitely do is that I help with communication and that's communication on all levels it's between developers and leaders and between leaders between developers but also between developers and customers or clients where where the people who are stakeholders who are the ones who pay money or pay time or something for for the system they have to understand why it's important to take care of all this handling behind the scenes and it is really difficult for them to understand because for instance in in scrum or other agile settings where we want to show we want to demo the things how far have we gone to the users and, and the clients and and people are happy to do that but these are the things that are invisible they are hard to see
0: what are some mistakes or missteps you see in how developers will raise these concerns these under the surface problems and that are tend to not really work in their favor?
1: <laughs> well, I think the wonderful pride that developers has having the beauty of their code can sometimes be in the way of these conversations, because they might sometimes phrase it in a way where they said, well, we want it to be beautiful, we want it to be good code, and, and users don't understand those terms. So it would be more helpful... In, in what they want to achieve, perhaps to explain to the users that the long-term consequences are actually pretty pretty bad for the people who are using the system, who are paying money for the system.
0: There's a, there's a lot of cost associated with those problems that... They might understand that, you know, I think that's why technical debt is used as a metaphor to try to find some way to bridge the the topic, but you know, the conversation between stakeholders and developers. And developers sometimes are like, I don't understand how this remotely relates to debt. And I've had a lot of different conversations, obviously, about that with a number of other people in the industry. But I think you're you're right that there's I think sometimes wondering if the conversation about like, you know, I want beautiful clean code, like those are things that I think stakeholders are like, well. Yeah. Do you do you keep things well organized? Is that that's like that's your job and your responsibility as a software developer is to is to worry about that stuff. But do you find that it's almost that the developers are trying to seek, say, permission to do that? Like, it's is this a priority for me to to do a good job or to make sure things are well tested or that I'm cleaning up areas of things when I'm working on them? Or is it
1: that differs a lot as well, of course. There are some developers for whom it's very important that it's beautiful also on the inside, a little bit like Steve Jobs with the iPhone, right? Everything has to be beautiful, even the things people never, ever see. It just makes them feel good. There are some developers like that, but there are also developers who really want to have instant gratification, where they want things to work, and then they say to themselves, more or less subconsciously, well, we'll fix that later, we'll fix that later. And it's sort of the same discussion that we had when we started doing object-oriented programming. In the beginning with object-oriented programming, we could see that, well, now we can actually model the world. And because we can model the world, we can model the world completely, and we can make it very flexible. So we we could architect and design ourselves into a system where everything could be possible, everything that we could imagine could be possible. And some people would go that route and say, well, we want to make it very flexible. And some people will say, well, we'll just make the scarcest thing that we can do, the smallest thing that we can do. And that war is it's sort of still the same thing, but now it's just with technical debt.
0: I know that we've touched a little bit on how like developers might sometimes talk about you know, how it's affecting them. Are there some good effective ways to... That you've seen developers and stakeholders have conversations, so that stakeholders are going, okay, let let's definitely prioritize it. This seems important, and and for lack of a better term, at the, off the top of my head, like getting getting some buy in, so that the stakeholders are fully in support of, like, let's do this, and they're not necessarily just treating it as like, well, I need to do this so that my developers are happy, but like they actually say, no, this is actually really good for me too, and in, in my role.
1: Yeah, definitely. When I think about those conversations that work. It's normally when the developers or whoever is helping them with the communication with the stakeholders are able to create some analogies that the people who don't understand code and systems can actually understand. So whenever you want to explain something to somebody, especially something as weird as code and programming to somebody who doesn't understand anything you have to figure out what is already in their heads and then try to construct the idea you want to convey build on what they have in their heads so you need to find something in the stakeholders minds that you can use as an analogy and when they succeed in doing that then it it's very easy for the stakeholders to understand but if they don't understand they become, as, as normal human beings, when there's something they don't understand, they become scared and then they become angry and then they're defensive and they don't want to hear anymore. But for instance, if you could say, well, the technical debt, it's a bit like raising children, right? So when you're raising children, you can decide either to invest time and effort today or to invest a lot of time and effort later. So for people who have children, you can explain that factor. For people who don't have children, you use another analogy.
0: It's interesting. And I'm so curious about that specific analogy. Say you were working with the stakeholder and... Definitely, yes. So one example I have,
1: so I've got three children and they're all almost grown-ups, all of them now. And one of the things that is something every parent knows is that you take your child on a shopping trip and they're tired and they're hungry and you're going close to the aisle where you have the sweets or the toys. And the child, of course, wants sweets or toys. It's a natural thing. And then if the the parent will often just say no, and then the child will will behave a little bit more aggressive to get what they want, because that is the way human babies survive, right? To be aggressive until they get what they want. And then what what you can do is that you can say, oh, I don't have the energy to say no right now. And you can say, yes, of course. And then perhaps one time you say yes after one little... Begging, and sometimes you'll do it after three, and sometimes you'll do it after a tantrum. But the problem is that if you give in to that after like three beggings or a tantrum, the child will have learned that that's what you do. So the next time you'll hear begging four times and two tantrums, so you'll have a harder time later. But if you invest the time in telling the child, well, you can have that, but not right now, or tomorrow we'll have that, or every Saturday we'll have sweets so that they understand calmly this is what it is. And when I say no, I mean no. You spent the energy, then you don't have to spend a lot of energy later. There's loads of examples like that.
0: <laughs> and you mentioned that you have your own business. What services does MetaDeveloper offer?
1: Anything that's fun, but I can pull out the three most important ones. So the most important thing for me is that I facilitate retrospectives. I've been facilitating retrospectives for more than 10 years, and I love it. And that's definitely the favorite part of my work. Another favorite part of my work is that I teach how to teach computer science at the university. So I've been teaching computer science at the university for about 18 years, and I've also been teaching in industry. So now I'm teaching the teachers how to teach it. So the um, PhD students and the teaching assistants. So that's the second thing that I do. And the third thing that I do is that I invite speakers for different conferences. At the moment, I invite speakers for conferences for developers in Australia and for at Dell conferences in the UK.
0: I want to dive into a couple of those different services that you, you offer and you're specializing in, but out of curiosity on the conference side, is that a matter of, are you part of the process of putting up a, like a CFP for a conference, like call for proposals and like reviewing them or are you more like seeking out specific talent and speakers to come to a conference and give keynotes or like very targeted? All three. So, for the conferences
1: in Australia I, I do the latter. I seek out talent, so I go to other conferences or I watch a lot of talks online on YouTube, and I talk to a lot of people who go to conferences and get ideas. And for some of the conferences that i that i I mean I'm the program member for in uh, in england i I look through a lot of proposals, so i look I read through a lot of abstracts. they're anonymous, of course, so I don't know who it is. And then I evaluate them together with some reviewers, and then I pick them out based on uh, the the evaluations from me and the other reviewers
0: nice I'm, I'm, I know that things like that could be a little bit of a thankless jobs at time, but thank you for for helping be a good curator for conferences and stuff. I know that's it's a very time consuming thing and and requires a lot of thought. so thank you on behalf of the community. I'll do my best to <laughs> represent them. Welcome. You mentioned uh, retrospectives and being a facilitator retrospective, and I have yet to have a guest on the show to specifically dive into the weeds there a little bit. So as a facilitator retrospectives for agile development workflows and processes, and you're also the author of the Lean Pub book, Anti-Patterns for Retrospectives, I'd love to spend some time really talking about this with you. So first, let's assume that there might be a few developers listening who have heard the word retrospective but have yet to participate in one. What are they... When, why do teams tend to adopt these in their development life cycle? <laughs> well,
1: I could tell you why people tend to adopt these, but I could also tell you why they should. So the reason why they will adopt these is because they're using a process where it says on page six that they need to facilitate retrospectives every once in a while. That's what I meet most often when I come out there. The reason why they should do it, though, is because we have to learn all the time. We have to learn from what we're doing. We have to learn from the good stuff and the bad stuff that happens. And retrospectives is just a nice structured way of learning from the past.
0: Hmm. How is it different than just having a, a meeting?
1: Oh, yes, that's a good question. So why is it different? So if meetings were wonderful, then it would not be different. Meetings are normally not wonderful. I don't know. Raise your hand if you think a meeting is wonderful to have. Not not many hands. So the retrospective has some rules and it has some roles. So there's, a, there's the role of the facilitator and then there's the role of, of a member of the retrospective. And there are some rules to the retrospective as well. One rule is the uh, prime directive based on the book by Norm Kurth. Norm Kurth was the first who wrote about project retrospectives. He took he abandoned the word postmortems and used the word project retrospectives, and he wrote the prime directive. And the prime directive basically says you have to accept the fact or at least try to get into the mindset when you enter a retrospective that everybody always did the best they could given the circumstances. So that's one of the rules. Another rule is that you should have parallel thinking, that everybody should think in parallel on the same part of the meeting. So what happens sometimes at meetings is that some people will, at the same point in time, some people will think about the solution, some people will think about the problem, some people will think about the causes behind the problem, some people will think about experiments. And what you do in a retrospective is that you have a really firm path that you go through five different steps, so that everybody's on the same page all the time. That's that's the difference with the rules and the roles.
0: Interesting. You know, I'm one of those people that actually does enjoy meetings when they're well structured. I just would add that caveat. Like I have a couple of meetings, like standing meetings, that they're actually my favorite meetings because I know exactly how to prepare for them, how to be participate in them, and I know exactly what's going to happen next. And I think, and we do it weekly, so I know exactly what that cycle is going to be like. And I think with retrospectives, are these types of meetings or these types of conversations and facilitated discussions things that should happen on a regular cadence, or is it primarily at the end of a project or you know, you mentioned postmortems and I've heard people interchange that sometimes. And I sometimes wonder, like, what's the difference between them? So maybe a couple of different questions, I think, there. But
1: yeah, so first I want to react to the thing you said about meetings. If meetings are done well, if there is an agenda, if there is a facilitator or a meeting leader, they can be wonderful, definitely. And yeah, I'm, it's just very rarely I see that in meetings, unfortunately. But to your questions, so the difference is that when we started with project retrospectives with Norm Kurt when, Kurt when he changed it from post-mortems, which evidently is after the project is dead, that's why it's called a post-mortem, and, but then he just changed the wording into project retrospectives to make it a bit more positive instead of saying that it's dead, it's just a retrospective way of looking back in retrospect. But then Diana Larson and Esther Darby in their book Agile Retrospectives, Making Good Teams Great, they change the whole retrospective thought into smaller retrospectives. That's done, for instance, after each sprint if you're doing Scrum, but at least during the um, the project cycle.
0: You touched on uh, the fact that you know people need to go into it. You mentioned the prime directive and knowing that there's maybe not putting any blame on anyone or anything during those conversations. I, I would imagine that there's probably still scenarios where there there's like a tendency to want to point a finger at something or someone for maybe it's maybe it's someone that's not part of the conversation in that meeting like maybe it's the client or the stakeholder or some third party company that you are working with during the process to integrate with their API that maybe caused some problems. How do you, how do you help teams kind of navigate that so they can really? Embrace that because I, I, I was just thinking about a recent retrospective that I was in, and I had a developer on my team that was really being really hard on themselves, and I was like, I don't. I guess I'm looking for some free consulting here.
1: <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> you can get me a beer when we meet. There are numerous different answers to that question. I'll try to take them one at a time. So the first thing is how. What do I do to enable that thought? process in people where they're not trying to shame and blame, but instead trying to to figure out what we should do better next time. Every time I start a retrospective, I try to say the prime directive in one way or the other. And I I change the wording, wording depending on what kind of team I'm working with. Some teams like the original prime directive with all the words. Some teams like that I just say, remember, we're not blaming, we're not shaming. We're trying to find the faults in the system and the communication, not the singular people and that holds for yourself as well so when you're thinking oh i was stupid i was dumb i should have done this better try to think about what could i have known at the time what resources could i have had at the time that could have helped me if i actually enable the team to think like that the the solutions that they come up with are so much more powerful and they're so much more forgiving towards others but also themselves you often see people who are very harsh on other people they're also harsh on themselves. But there was another question, and that was about other people, the people who are not in the room. Sometimes they'll be blaming the managers, blaming the testers, blaming the other team. And what I do there is that I try to evaluate the situation. Sometimes people need to vent a little bit. I don't want them to backstab people, but sometimes they need to say something. And then I try to turn it around and say, why do you think he did that? Why do you think she said that? What could they have tried to achieve Because a mantra that I have when I'm facilitating is everybody just wants to be seen, everybody wants to be loved. So whenever people do something that seems evil or awkward or weird or unnecessary, try to figure out why did they say that? Why did, were they trying to gain some respect? Were they trying to make you believe in them? What was it? I I understand that sometimes we're working with psychopaths and we can't really change them and we... And that's that's a different value set that I just don't understand. I appreciate that. But but for most people, it's like that. So I think I tried to answer all the questions.
0: No, I, thank you for that. I wrote down some notes for myself to think about, even with my own team here. So, you know, I'm I'm really curious, you know, you mentioned the role of a facilitator. Is a facilitator just making sure the agenda kind of stays on course or are they injecting some of their own opinions or helping clarify or ask follow-up questions to help dig in more? Mm,
1: that's That's a very
0: interesting question.
1: In essence, a facilitator is just a facilitator for other people's discussions, for other people's solutions. So if you're being idealistic when you have facilitated a retrospective or any other meeting, after that people should be able to say, was I Aino really here? Did she do anything? She wasn't necessary. If people think that I wasn't necessary, then I've done my job well, because then I've facilitated in a way that wasn't obstructive. Sometimes in an organization where they struggle, for instance, with an agile journey, they struggle with a new process, they struggle with a standout for their code, they struggle with a review process, they struggle with something in particular. And then sometimes they ask me, what do other people do? What kind of experiments can we do here? And then I step out of the facilitation role, I say, "Well, I can share with you because I have working with a lot of different development teams. I can share with you some things that have worked for other people, for instance, there was this team I once had where there was a bottleneck, and then an experiment was that every other Wednesday he would not be at work and he would not be on slack and then they had to solve the problems without him, and that forced them to do that so So that's something that I can say. I can say, well, you could try this as an experiment, or I know that at eBay they do that, or Google they do that, or well, if you mention those companies, people normally listen, no matter whether it's true or not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I like uh, the idea of you know helping bring in. I think one of the values is being like a consultant or someone that is working across a lot of different types of client and different teams, you do get to see how things are working. You get to see like a little window at that point in time when you're working with them and you, you're you hoping that they can continue learning. And But some of those experiments shake things up a little bit.
1: You just have to be really careful when you're facilitating. Facilitation, as, as you say, the facilitator, that's a role. That's a very firm role. When I'm a consultant and helping them with an agile journey or transformation, then I can say, well, you could try this, you could try this. But when you're facilitating retrospective, what you want to get out of it is experiments that the team themselves have come up with because if if it's their idea then that's what they have energy for that's what they are interested in doing and if i say well if i always say well you can do this and this and this then they'll say oh that's a very good idea we'll put that up as an experiment and we'll make sure we'll do it and they won't do it because it's not their idea it's not what they have the energy for does it make sense
0: yeah i think the one of the things you mentioned was reminding the team that thinking about what should we do better or how can we be better in the future going forward sometimes i've seen teams kind of approach those conversations with uh how do we make sure this never happens again how do you help teams kind of know that like the distinction there
1: well it's about it's a reality check of course they want to change things and it will never ever happen again i sometimes talk about risks in the future sometimes i have a more like a future perspective where we say well this is this is what we expect will happen in the future this will happen this will happen and then people will say well we'll, we'll definitely make sure this doesn't happen again because this happened the last time It was dreadful and then i say well yes great so one way to do that is to figure out what is the cause what caused this so instead of just for instance saying um we shouldn't stop pair programming then try to figure out why did we stop doing the pair programming? It, can we can we find the cause behind that? Could it be that people are very introvert? Could it be that there's no trust and they don't want other people to look at their code? Could it be that they firmly believe that the only way to work is to be alone with the headset on, then just enforcing more pair programming won't work, right? So that's one thing, looking at the causes, Another thing is also that I sometimes make this soup diagram with them. I say, well, you can divide these things into three different areas. You can have the area that you can do something about, the area where you can have influence, and then the soup that you can't do anything about. And sometimes it's very valuable to look at these things, because a a thing like the one you mentioned, this should never happen again. If it's in the soup, if it's out of the power of the team, then they can't make sure it won't happen again. But what they can do is that they can figure out, okay, so if it happens again, how should we react? It's a bit like, Give me coffee when I need coffee to solve this problem. Give me wine when I need wine to forget this problem. And give me wisdom to understand whether I should take coffee or or wine, right? (laughs) I think there's also a biblical quote there, but this is is more my line.
0: (laughs) So as a facilitator, you know, we talked a little bit about that role. You know, what is the responsibility of, say, a team member, say, a developer on a team? Typically, should they be spending time preparing for a retrospective or is it something that you should typically just be able to show up you know just be like all right i'm here now i can participate what do you recommend to teams like a real consultant i'll say it depends
1: (laughs) so normally when i facilitate retrospectives for a new group i'll say don't don't prepare just show up and i'll i'll guide you through all these steps and the first time i have a retrospective with a new group it'll be like lifting up the carpet and there'll be no theme, and I'll just try to figure out where are the pain points, where are the bottlenecks, what are they ashamed of, what are they afraid of, what do they like, just to figure out where we are. And then the next time I might have a theme, I might go into depth with the test environment or the process or the communication or whatever. So it depends, really. And and then sometimes if if the team wants to have a more technical retrospective, where they'd like to look at... so how what's the qual- what's the quality of our system what's the quality of our architecture what are the bottlenecks what's the legacy like what's the technical debt like that we can have it we can have a retrospective about that as well how did this happen but then they need to prepare with the because the second stage of a of a retrospective the first stage is that you you set the scene and you you explain to people what's going to happen and the second part is to gather the data and the gathering data could be post-it notes where they write down oh, i like this i didn't like this that could be feelings but it could also be technical stuff it could be like oh this is where the test failed or this is where we had to expand the system and the architecture didn't support that or and for those they probably need to prepare because otherwise they'll spend half an hour just going through the um the commit messages and stuff like that. And and we always have like set aside a very specific time box for retrospectives and, and we don't want to go over that.
0: Typically, how much time are you allocating for, uh, I'm sure this is another it depends conversation, but maybe it's not. Is, is there a typical time window that you think is effective before meetings become like it becomes too long of a conversation?
1: Mm. Well, I was, to me, the ideal is have a retrospective every two weeks for 90 minutes but then it varies because there are some teams where i have online retrospectives all the time <clears throat> and 90 minutes can be very long if you're doing an online where you it, it can just feel a lot longer because you can't move around you can't change your setting so sometimes then i'll take an hour or or maybe an hour and 10 minutes or something like that
0: interesting for those teams that are on a regular say cadence uh having those meetings are you encouraging team members to kind of earmark things that they can th- bring to a retrospective. Like, Hey, if something pops up, you know, in the next two weeks, that's, you definitely want to make sure we touch on. So we don't forget about it. And have to remember like in that cram in that hour or two, right before the meeting, because you looked at the agenda, am like, Oh, right, That's on my schedule today. I need to like go back and try to remember everything that happened in the last two weeks. Do you ask people to collect those things themselves, post the notes on their desk or their monitor, or have like a shared collection that people can throw them into like a form or something? Like what have you seen work well for people?
1: Well, that, that also depends a lot. There are, there are some teams where they, they all have a, a post-it uh, posted note on the table, and then when it, whenever there's something that they think about, we need to have this at the retrospective, they write it down. Then there's some people who have a real-time timeline, which means that in the room that they sit, if they're co-located, they have a timeline that starts from the last retrospective and goes to the next retrospective. And whenever something happens, good or bad, they can put up a post-it note so that everybody can see it. So that, if you have the real-time timeline, that means that instead of just having a lot of red notes on your table and not doing anything about it because I want to wait until the next retrospective, other people can see, who there's a problem here. Maybe we should talk about this. Because sometimes I'm thinking that if the reflection muscle and the discussion muscle were actually firm on everybody, then whenever something popped up that was not optimal, they would have a discussion about it, they would look into the courses, and and they would reflect on it and figure out how to do it better. But because that reflection muscle is not really trained for most of us, we need to have these retrospectives where you can reflect. I would like people to have a small retrospective every morning, like they sometimes do in mob programming, where they have a small retrospective to, to fix things all the time so that you don't have to wait because if you know if you let problems wait or if you let bad mood wait then it becomes really toxic
0: yeah that's that's true there's no need to have to always wait say two weeks or until your network's perspective to have some of these conversations We'll be back with our interview with Aino in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. I also wanted to thank those that have spent some time sending me thoughtful emails or posting a message on Twitter and maybe suggesting this to one of your peers. It's been really, really appreciative. Also, I'm starting to consider the idea of bringing in sponsors for Maintainable. So if that is something that you think your organization might be interested in doing, get in touch with me at Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Dr. Aino Corey. What is a successful retrospective look like what what happens next is it that the team has a bunch of to-do items or is it just things that for the most part they're just everybody said we're all here we are we all will all hopefully remember these things that we've tried to some commitments they made you know we made as a team like what, what what is an ideal outcome yeah that's a good question as well yeah because what happens between the retrospectives
1: is as important as the retrospectives otherwise they're they're valueless what is very important is that you have some sort of outcome of the retrospective. There should be some learning. And that learning could be in different it could be done in different ways. Some sometimes I have a retrospective with people where they all walk out with one little thing that they personally want to change. But most often what happens is that the team as a group decides between one and three experiments that they want to try out until the next retrospective. And then the important thing here is that Don't just write that down in an email or a blog post somewhere and then go back to the Jira and have all the stories that you need to do because then you'll forget it. And then at the next retrospective, they'll be like, oh, really? Wow, I forgot about that. Well, I'll definitely do that next time. So it's very important when you have some experiments that you want to do that comes out of the retrospective, that's a learning, is that you put it into whatever Prioritized story backlog you have, so that they become part of it. That so that they're citizens, equal citizens with the rest of the workload.
0: And does that help provide a bit of accountability to the team? I could think on like a tangible level. If there's like we've identified that there's definitely something that we, some code that we produce, maybe on like really specific level, we produce some code. We know we're going to need to refactor that to account for you know, X or something based on what we've learned. So that can become a story or something in your backlog and you can take care of that. But if it's like as a team, we want to start trying to do this more often.
1: That doesn't work. Everybody's responsibility is nobody's responsibility. So for me, it's very important that there's a name on all these experiments. And it doesn't have to be the one who has to do all the work, but it should be the one that at least tries to enforce that this experiment is done and that can report back at the next retrospective what's the status of this and the reason why i keep saying experiments is if you say to people so what do you want to change they might not want to change anything because oh well we can't decide something as formidable as that in one hour or two hours we can always describe an experiment nobody's afraid of an experiment right
0: some language that I found myself using is uh, piloting something. If we want to try something new. I like the, I like the experiment uh, approach too. I think that might work better in some context. So as part of that retrospective process, are you typically looking back at the experiments that you've said you were going to? Is that part of like an early part of the process in a retrospective, like, like review?
1: Yeah, for me, that's the first phase in the retrospective is that I ask for what's the status from last time. So I have a little book where I write down all the experiments that all my teams that I'm facilitating for what what they want. And then for the next retrospective, one of the ways that I prepare for a retrospective as a facilitator is that I look at what did they decide to do last time. I sent them an email the day before perhaps where I remind them that they should prepare for giving everybody the status of that. And then I start the retrospective with so what was the status on this, this, and this? And then I, I put down in my little book next to it how how well did they actually perform the experiment? Was the experiment a success? What happened? What did they learn? And then I have a round where everybody says something. And it's very important that everybody says something because there's some quiet people. And if you allow them to be quiet at the beginning, then they might be quiet the rest of the time.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Some, some good tips there. And you touched on this, that you some of your clients are have remote teams and so for for folks that work as you know maybe they're a remote developer or work on a distributed team what advice do you have for them on how to be a good participant in these and or if you're a team where you have one or two people that are remote like what are some i know we, you probably have a whole podcast topic on just this but what are some like couple of quick little things that you can think of off the top of your head that help make those things more effective for everybody
1: Well, one of the things you asked me earlier was, what's the responsibility of the facilitator? Is it just taking care of the structure and the agenda? And another thing that's very important for a facilitator is looking at the energy in the room. I spend a lot of energy looking at the body language of people. I I look at who's standing close to whom. What direction are the feet and the bodies pointing in? Uh, It shows who they agree with, who they disagree with, what they want to talk about if they don't want to talk anymore. That is very, very difficult in an online retrospective. So one of the things that I try to say is that everybody should be on video. I want to see everybody's face all the time. So don't don't give me that, oh, I'm just gonna take the retrospective from my car so I can't be on video, or I'm taking it from the cafe so I can't be on video. No, because that means you're not respecting the time. So it's it's part of enforcing the video for everybody is to force them to respect the time. And then also people need to prepare differently for an online retrospective than for a real life retrospective. Because it seems to me that it's more okay to be late to something online than it is in real life. There's a bit more shame in, in having to open the door and, and disturb everybody. You, you sometimes think oh, I can sneak into this online meeting. I won't disturb anybody. Maybe they don't even notice I'm not there. I notice if they they always have a list of all the names that I'm facilitating, and I go through the list. And I make sure I can see everybody and I can make sure I can hear everybody before we start, because I don't want to deal with that when we're in the middle of an interesting conversation. So what I do is that I send an email 24 hours before saying, remember, tomorrow we have this meeting could be a retrospective or any other meeting. And this is a material that I want you to be able to look at. This is a shared document. Make sure that you can access the shared document because I don't want to spend the first five minutes with people saying, oh, do I need a passport for this? Or, oh, give me the link. Does anybody have the link? It's I find that disrespectful. For that reason, I also sent an email 15 minutes before the online meeting saying, remember, there's a meeting in 15 minutes, so go get a cup of coffee, go have the bio break now.
0: (laughs) Some good advice there. Um, Do any of your clients have scenarios where there's maybe only one or two people remote in in some of those conversations and how to best facilitate where their, their view might be of, say, a room of people and they're like the one face? there or i know there's some companies that are trying to start exploring the idea of having more like have everybody on their laptops there but then you gotta ask everybody to mute their microphone or something and that just seems an extra level of distraction probably for everybody that is like in the physical room but i I think that's i've seen that become like we know that there's people that are occasionally remote and how to make sure they're not too disconnected i think from from the hub of where everybody else on a team's working
1: yeah there's a lot of discussion about that I appreciate the, uh, the problems that you mentioned there as well. I think that whenever you have a discussion like that, you should go back to the basis. You should ask why. And the reason why people want to do that is because we want to make everybody equal. To me, it's very important that everybody's equal at a retrospective, which is also why if you can hire or fire, you're not welcome in the retrospective. Then you should go to the, like retrospective with other people who can hire and fire, right? So if you go back to the outset that everybody should be equal, How can you make everybody equal? So if you look at a retrospective where you have a group of, say, six people, they're working together, they're co-located, and then you have two people who are alone in two different countries. If you have a retrospective where you have six people in a room and two other people sitting on their own, are they equal? Yes or no? No. How can we achieve this equality? Because I know it's a lot of hassle that everybody has to mute and everybody has to be in their own room, but you have to look at the consequences. If six people are in a room together they will definitely be communicating in one way or the other. It could be that they are actually communicating. It could be that they are pointing at each other's screens and whispering. But it's just also just the smell that, that you have in the room for other people. It communicates something to other people and, and where people are looking, in what direction they're looking. So there's a lot of communication going on if they're co-located that other people don't get.
0: So I think you make a lot of good points there about how you want everybody to be treated equally. And so I think I think it's good for teams probably to go through that process and think about the tooling and how they're bringing in external people, say external, even the fact that I just said external makes it even sound like maybe they're not part of the same team. And that's, I think, I think people understand where I'm trying to come from there, but it's still, at least reflect on it. I don't know if there's always a better answer for it, but I, I think it's at least something to put some thought into. You know, as as an example, my team right now is we're we're software consultancy, and everybody historically has been uh, works in the office, except for they might work from home one or two days a week. And so we're all located in the same city, and we're starting to explore the idea of bringing in our first remote employee. And we've had a lot of conversations about like, well, how do we make sure that they feel like they're part of the team, and make sure that they like? I think even the fact that we're saying that they're part of the team, like they are part of the team, but what what will we need to do differently culturally? And even that, and not, and not culturally, even just like logistically, to make sure that they're they're not always like the afterthought. Like, oh shit, don't forget about so and so. You know, it's like how do we bake that in when you when you f- first start making those first steps? And I sometimes wonder if it'd be easier for us if we hire like five to ten people at once and be like, okay, now we have this thing, we need to sort it out for everybody. So we're not just sorting it out for one person. But I think we just want to be mindful about that approach. And so. Uh, I think retrospectives are a good way maybe to think about that, especially I would imagine that if you're in a team and someone's working from home one day, that it would be better for them to participate than not participate if they'd been around. So, or not delay the meeting because until the next time they can be in in person because then you're constantly like chasing like a scheduling thing or something. What do you advise teams if there's like, say, someone that was on the team that's sick that day you just still do it and then they don't get to participate that particular time
1: normally that's what I'll do but it depends sometimes if it's the same person that's sick every time there's a retrospective that I see a pattern there and then I and then I talk to that person about what they get out of the retrospective the interesting thing is that sometimes I've had some teams where I've facilitated retrospectives with them for some time and then sometimes I've one or two being very negative about it still and they say we don't really get anything out of the retrospectives and I say oh that's interesting you're saying that let's look at all the experiments we decided to do in the last 6 months with all the retrospectives because I have them in my little book and then we look at them and we see how many of them did you actually do well we did all these what did you get out of this oh we got this and this out of it okay what about the things that you didn't do? Was it because they became irrelevant? Yes, yeah, some of it might become irrelevant with time or other things happen. But then there's also and there's the rest of the things that they decided to do, but they didn't do, and they are not irrelevant, so they're still relevant, but they haven't done them. And then we divide them into long-term and short-term goals, because another thing that often happens is that people create long-term goals as experiments, and you just you just can't do anything about that. And what happens when I... Take the teams through this exercise is that they see, okay, we actually did get something out of the retrospectives, and for those retrospectives where the experiments didn't work, we didn't get anything out of it, that was because we didn't spend enough time on massaging these experiments so that they were actually short enough, small enough to be done before the next retrospective
0: so you're you're looking to have them be attainable yes in, in some and achievable within like between now and the next time, so I think that's a good way to frame it. Like what can we do experiment in the next two weeks is probably a good way to frame it.
1: It should be like a smart goal. I think there are various. The one that I use is specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. But I think there are other yes, yeah. <laughs> the words to describe
0: it. I, I always have to like go back and double check what that that, what that looks like. So it's also my understanding that your your book, Anti Patterns for Retrospective, is actually going to be republished later this year. And I think that's something you just recently confirmed, right? Yes, exactly. Actually, yesterday. So uh, oh, I'm awesome. really
1: thrilled about that. Yeah, Pearson is going to publish it as a real book. It will be a real book in the fall.
0: Excellent. Will the uh the lean pub editions be hard to find in the future? And so people should jump on that sooner in the meantime or should you start getting ready to pre-order?
1: <laughs> well, there, there's a sundown for the uh, Lean Pop book, and that will probably be, I think, April or May, where we'll start to publish it online on the Safari platform instead. And the book awesome. is cheaper in Lean Pop, so you should go ahead and buy it now.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, congratulations on, on getting that, that book deal there and um, make sure that we promote that once that's around and, and available for folks. So a couple last questions for you. What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry?
1: Um, yes. Why We Sleep. Have you read that?
0: I have not. I've, I've heard of it, though.
1: Why We Sleep It's because I think, well, probably it's like that for everybody, but I've noticed that a lot of people at least in our IT business, they don't sleep enough because they have, oh, I just need to finish this. I need to finish this. And then they, oh, they come up to work next morning. They're really tired. I went to bed at three o'clock. I was sitting with this problem. It's like they're not acknowledging how important sleep is, not just for the brain, but for the entire body. And I, I've definitely been, been doing that as well. And also as a student thinking, oh, I better plug in. I better get some more hours in instead of sleeping. And it's really, really, really stupid and unhelpful. Not only does it uh, do bad things to your brain, but to your whole system. So why we sleep, I think, is very important.
0: I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and opinions on software development and agile retrospectives online?
1: Well, I am on Twitter. I'm not very active, so you can can follow me on Twitter without getting spammed.
0: Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, I know. Thank you so much for joining us and talking shop. Thank
1: you. I really enjoyed it.